At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. The Countdown Bulletin podcast in the appeals court for the District of Columbia has actually stayed for at least two weeks. Judge Tanya Chutkin's gag order on Trump. And this is absolute bullshit. And the members of the three-judge panel, consisting of two judges appointed by Obama and one appointed by Biden, should be impeached and disbarred because they actually fell in a time of crisis, not just for a pathetically weak First Amendment excuse, but for a series of arguments based on the delusions of grandeur, megalomaniacal premise that this madman Trump believes 100 million Americans are somehow being deprived of their right to hear him speak. Because a judge had ruled, no, Trump was not allowed to threaten the judge and threaten the court officials and threaten the prosecutors. And no, he was not allowed to try to convince his cultists to try to kill them on his behalf. He had already been given by the judge who issued the gag order and has received the death threats the right to continue his insane claim that the prosecution of his attempt to overthrow the government of the United States and foment violent revolution in this country and install an authoritarian regime with him as its permanent dictator, that that was no crime. That was actually a political vendetta personally ordered by the president of the United States. All Judge Chutkin wanted to stop was the continued attempt by Trump to use the social media site he owns and the propaganda video networks that make their only money by platforming him and the fascist rallies he stages to say it in just the right way to get somebody to kill special counsel Jack Smith and to kill Judge Tanya Chutkin and to call in bomb threats to the courtroom and to dox the jurors the way Trump got hundreds of his cultists to attack the Capitol on January 6th and the way he doxed Obama and one of his cultists then went to Obama's neighborhood and hunted him with the ultimate goal of all of this being obvious and evil to institutionalize political violence and turn it into the determinative factor in how this country is not governed but ruled and how it would be ruled by him. Donald Trump is a terrorist, a terrorist and he has been using terrorism by proxy to destroy the laws and rules and norms of this country without interruption by the law or by the courts for fully eight years. And when the justice system finally stands up on its feet and the courts finally stand up on their feet and all recognize that after all of our other institutions have utterly failed and all of our leaders have failed to protect this nation against domestic terrorism in the form of Trump and his family and his enablers, when somebody finally begins to do something about it, these assholes on the D.C. appeals court say, well, no. Maybe the legal system of this country has been bending over backwards to protect the rights of this man who would destroy it and kill anybody in it he doesn't like. But we don't see that in bending over backwards, 
the legal system in this country has yet severed its own spine. So we're going to grant an administrative stay until at least November 20th to prove that we're great legal scholars and we are fair and we are true judges and we are giving Trump every opportunity to get Jack Smith killed or to get Merrick Garland's home bombed. And why, yes, you're right, if there had been some sort of legal case against Osama bin Laden before us in the summer of 2001, we would have delayed the injunction against him for two weeks. Because it's far more important to give people bent on destroying the United States every last ounce of their rights than it is to protect the laws of this country or the judges of this country or the representative form of government of this country or the citizens of this country. And if this were not on its face infuriating enough, Trump gets at least 17 more days to resume his stochastic attempts to terrorize Smith and Garland and Chutkin and Biden, and democracy, and you, and me. This ruling was made by Judge Patricia Millett, appointed by Barack Obama, and Judge Cornelia Pillard, appointed by Barack Obama, and Judge Bradley Garcia, appointed by Joe Biden. And the only explanation they offered for this atrocity of a ruling is, quote, the purpose of this administrative stay is to give the court sufficient opportunity to consider the emergency motion for a stay pending appeal and should not be construed in any way as a ruling on the merits of that motion. Which I guess translates as the judges will sleep soundly tonight thinking that they have done their legal duty, even though these three judges are as guilty as every access journalist and every horse race reporter and every other detached figure in the American political media industrial complex who is content to live their lives learning all the legal words there are without ever once understanding the meanings of any of those words nor the actual impact of the rulings they don't understand that they have constructed out of the words they don't understand. These things have real-life consequences, and these judges don't give a damn about that. We must never live in a country in which the only answer is the ends justify the means. But we are now living in a country in which one political party does live that saying, while the other political party and almost all of the legal structure of the nation do not and will not even once or twice. There are, in fact, occasions in which the ends not only justify the means, but in fact are the only things that matter. And if you or Judge Millett or Judge Prillard or Judge Garcia think that is not true, or has never been true in the United States of America, let me ask you and them to tell me what you remember of what you have learned about the Civil War and what you remember of what you have learned about the limitation of freedoms during the World Wars and what you have learned about the measures taken in the immediate aftermaths of the Kennedy assassination and 9-11. Generations of Americans have proudly stated that this is a country of laws and not men, and it is noble, and it is inspirational, and it is superb guidance. But it has not been, it has never been consistently true. There are threats to this country so great to the nation, to its people, that we have reacted to defend ourselves first and cleared up the legal niceties later. And Donald Trump is exactly that kind of threat, a clear and present danger to everyone in this country. And all I am left to believe here is that Judge Millett and Judge Pillard and Judge Garcia do not understand this, possibly because it has not been their name on a death threat 
and it has not been their address on a doxing, and it has not been their home to which DHS goes to make sure it really is fake anthrax this time. And let me tell the judges that when it is, and judges, you have now painted your own Trump bullseyes on yourselves by not just addressing this gag order, but showing him and his thugs what they will perceive only as your weakness. When it is your name and your life, you will understand what Judge Chutkin already knows and what Jack Smith already knows and what even irrelevancies like I already know. That you cannot defend yourself and you cannot defend your nation by giving a terrorist an extra 17 days to terrorize everybody. You must look at him and respond in rage and use the legal system as a staff to strike him down legally. Trump is not going to be impressed that you have given the defendant the benefit of the doubt here. His militias are not going to say, well, look at these three judges appointed by Democrats being fair to our cult leader. Bravo. The Trump cultists will now spend, as will Trump, the next 17 days adding your names to their lists of who to threaten and bully and smear and abuse. And I don't see you getting appropriately angry about it. And worst of all, it was within your power to do something else here, to dismiss this phony, maudlin, insane appeal outright, or if you truly feel the legal structure of this country would shatter if you did not give terrorism its day in court, you could have ordered a hearing on it not two weeks from Monday, but right now. You want us to stay this gag order, Trump? Get your lawyers' asses, who you will try to avoid paying later, get them into our courtroom three hours from now. That is the way you balance the letter of the law with the threat of imminent terrorism, Judge Millett, Judge Pillard, Judge Garcia. And if you really didn't know enough about the threat of Trump and his stochastic terrorist gang, you could have just asked Judge Arthur Engeron in New York. After weeks of taking the kind of abuse you have just invited upon yourselves, that you have just enabled on all of us, Judge Engeron not only put in a gag order against Trump for doxing his court clerk, but today Engeron expanded the gag order to cover Trump's ambulance-chasing lawyer, Mr. Keis, who Mr. Keis is the man who decided to attempt to distract the media, and rather successfully, from the seeming obviousness that the Trump boys perjured themselves in Engeron's courtroom this week. So to distract from that, Kai staged this entire sideshow in which he gave Engeron no other choice but to shut down both him and Donald Trump. But at least Engeron did something. At least he acted on behalf of the United States of America. Even the goddamned publishers of Mark Meadows' book did something today. They're conservative propagandists. At best, they are idiots. At worst, they are terrorists. And yet they are so pissed off that Meadows wrote that the election was rigged, but is now under oath saying it wasn't rigged, that they have sued him to get the money back. And as venal as they are, the publishers and Meadows alike, they did more for America today than the D.C. appeals court did. Because there are supposed to be consequences. Because there are supposed to be people in charge. At least the publishers didn't sit back and shrug their shoulders and say, good luck, America. At least Judge Engeron didn't file a boilerplate license to stochastically kill to a madman with no more concern for human life than has bubonic plague and then go home for the weekend while Trump dreams up his newest rough beast to attack a fellow judge and a dogged prosecutor. A rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouching towards Mar-a-Lago to be born. Judge Millett, 
Judge Pillard, Judge Garcia, your job is to use the laws of this nation to kill the rough beast in the nest, not to be its midwives. Shame on you all. May the democracy survive your stupidity and your short-sightedness, and good luck in your next careers. The rest of this bulletin edition of the podcast is a repeat in its entirety of Friday's regular edition. If you have heard that edition already, there is no need to do so again, although it does go into considerable detail about the Trump appeal of the gag order, most of which was just Trump's attorney's Lauren Boberding, Trump's ego for 10 or 12 pages. It was an embarrassing and even humiliating argument that these idiot appeals judges unbelievably swallowed whole. Chutkin hits the gas, Judge Engeron hits the roof, Judge Cannon does not hit the pause button. But let me start at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, where Dementia J. Trump's lawyers last night filed a 35-page document, one or two paragraphs of which asks that the court bar Judge Tanya Chutkin from reinstating the gag order against Trump, the rest of which is about how wonderful Trump is and how much he leads in the primary polls. And it sounds like the dialogue they gave Rita Moreno in the last scene of the Jack Nicholson movie, Carnal Knowledge. Fourth paragraph of page one of the introduction, quote, President Trump's uniquely powerful voice has been a fixture of American political discourse for eight years and central to the American fabric for decades. Well, true, like car alarms or herpes. Page 11, item 4, quote, the gag order violates the rights of tens of millions of Americans to receive President Trump's speech. A restriction on President Trump's speech inflicts a reciprocal injury on the rights of over 100 million Americans who listen to him about how big and strong he is and is better, more beautiful, more powerful, more perfect, more strong, more masculine, more extraordinary, more virile, domineering, more irresistible, and more up in the air. I added a little something to that at the end. Now as to the actual election subversion trial, where any sense that any of the many delaying tactics of Dementia J's legal team or their big motion to dismiss the whole case because it's unfair to uh, charge a criminal with, uh, with crimes, Your Honor, that any of that was going to get them anything other than more billable hours that Trump will someday stiff them on, that has vanished with the issuance of what in every other trial would be just another procedural memo, but what in this one is a metaphorical backhand slap across Trump's pouchy face. Quote, the court will use a written questionnaire in advance of in-person jury selection, Judge Chutkin announces. Prosecution and defense should negotiate what's in that. They should submit it to her on January 9th. That's 68 days from now, before you subtract the holidays. And if the lawyers can't agree on the wording of the questionnaire, they need to tell her what's in dispute. Then, quote, after review and approval by the court, the questionnaire will be distributed to prospective jurors summoned to complete it at the courthouse on February 9, 2024, unquote. And that's 99 days from now before subtracting the holidays. And all that means is she intends to start this trial on the announced date, March 4th. And that's 123 days from now. Judge Chutkin went on to warn both sides that they can research potential jurors, but if they dox any of them, she will come down on them like a ton of bricks, and she ain't looking at Jack Smith when she says that. Quote, no party may provide jurors identifying information to any other entity, parenthesis, e.g., the defendant's campaign, unquote. 
That shot across Trump's bow is delicious. But the import of the Chutkin ruling is that it underscores Jack Smith's message to Trump's concierge judge in Florida, Eileen Cannon. You will recall that on Wednesday, Cannon made all the kinds of noises pretend judges make before they are going to do something inappropriate or biased or reeking of corruption. The same kind of dilatory time wasters that Chutkin just swatted away in Washington without even bothering to acknowledge them, Cannon accepted tenderly and did everything but swaddle them in baby clothes. I'm having a hard time seeing how this work can be accomplished in this compressed period of time, she said, while metaphorically beaming at the man who lifted her from among 6,000 assistant U.S. attorneys to a judgeship she was totally unprepared for. She spoke to the prosecutor then as if he were misguided, misled, miseducated. I'm not seeing in your position a level of understanding to these realities. And she hinted that as soon as the next day, yesterday, she might be making reasonable adjustments to the Florida documents case, pre-trial schedule, that could slide the start of that trial from May 14th until after the primaries, or after the convention, or after the election. And then she sat back as if waiting overnight would reduce the obviousness of her dual role as Trump's judge and one of Trump's lawyers. And then overnight came and went, and the sun rose and set, and Judge Cannon ruled nothing. And that was because Jack Smith's team filed a brief overnight Wednesday that explained to Judge Cannon that it was obvious she had missed the fact that Trump and his attorneys had pulled the rug out from under her, and that it was obvious to everybody in the world except her that they were all playing her like the proverbial $2 banjo. Here she was, ready to postpone, delay, or otherwise string out the Florida trial on the excuse that he had so much prep for the Florida trial that it would crash into the schedule for the Washington trial. But Trump had already filed not just a motion to dismiss the Washington trial, but was filing another motion to delay the Washington trial indefinitely until they get every court except Judge Wapner's to rule on this thing they made up called presidential immunity. In short, Cannon was about to delay her trial so Trump could concentrate on the Washington trial while Trump was busy demanding that they delay the Washington trial, too. Quote, as the government argued to the court Wednesday, the trial date in the District of Columbia case should not be a determinative factor in the court's decision whether to modify the dates in this matter. Defendant Trump's actions... And by the way, how nice is it to hear or say the phrase defendant Trump? Defendant Trump's actions in the hours following the hearing in the case illustrate the point and confirm his overriding interest in delaying both trials at any cost. Smith and Jay Bratt's filing then closes with what seems like an unfortunate typo, but which really reads more like a Freudian slip warning Eileen Cannon what a fool she is making of herself. Quote, This court should allow itself to be manipulated in this fashion. Of course, they meant should not allow. But if you read it as written, and that's about you, you should allow yourself to be manipulated in this fashion. I think it would make your cheeks burn. Wait, I am allowing myself to be manipulated. Regardless, Cannon's response to that filing was... Nothing. Nothing that we know of, anyway. I would still not hold out much hope that she will do the right thing. She's still on the case. Even though if there is an in-person hearing a week from Monday, Trump's attorneys really should bring in a cake celebrating the third anniversary of her appointment by the defendant. Still, corruption delayed could always turn out to be corruption denied. And where there's hope of honesty, there's life or something. Or, as the judicial website AboveTheLaw.com perfectly headlined its story on this farce, Trump demands delay in Florida case to accommodate delay in D.C. case to accommodate delay in dot, dot, dot. Before getting to the fracas here in New York, in which for once, Trump himself is actually an innocent bystander, 
One more note about Eileen Cannon. If you saw it, and it was everywhere, and you don't know that the purported Trump social media post about Cannon was a fake, it was a fake. It had him saying that she was the best judge since King David, and she gets the next Supreme Court opening. And given the bottomless pit of Trumpian corruption, it sounds utterly plausible. But there was a series of tells. First, content. Whoever wrote it refers to, quote, Looney Jack Smith, and he has never called him Looney. It's too endearing. Secondly, how in the hell would Trump, who kept not a Bible by his bed, but rather a copy of Hitler's favorite speeches, how in the hell would he know who King David was? Then there are the technical tells. Is it on his social media site? And if it isn't, which it wasn't, how come every time you see the screenshot, it's exactly the same one with the same font? Wouldn't more than one person have screenshotted something that would be that stupid even for Trump? I mean, there are literally dozens of reporters with burner accounts on Trump's site waiting for things like that, who get alerts for things like that, and only one of them got the screenshot? If you're going to bite on the fake ones, only bite on the good fake ones. Also, everything including the word adjudicated, was spelled correctly. Now to New York. It looked like the civil fraud trial of Trump and Jr. and Moron Jr. and Girl Jr. was going to be highlighted by Jr.'s admission that, sure, he signed all those fraudulent financial statements, but that doesn't mean he's responsible for what's in those fraudulent financial statements. Or if not that... Then it was going to be highlighted by Moron Jr., who yesterday testified under oath that he never heard of the company's statement of financial condition until recently. And then they showed him an email where employees were told that he was working on the company's statement of financial condition. But then something happened that caused Judge Arthur Engeron to literally pound on the bench and shout, if there is any further reference to anyone on my staff, I would consider expanding the gag order to include the attorneys, unquote. More amazing still, what caused that had nothing to do with any of the Trumps. But instead, it was about their attorney, Chris Keis, he complained to the bench about the court clerk, you know, the one Trump doxed. And in that paroxysm of paranoia, he claimed she was Chuck Schumer's girlfriend. And, and now she was passing notes to the judge and Keis complained about it. That's right, the judge shouted. Confidential communications for my record. Absolute right to it. You don't have any right to see it. While it would be joyful to think that Trump has actually only hired lawyers like Alina Haba and the other one, the one who vanished, the lawyer slash spokesmodel, Christina something, whatever happened to her? It would be joyful to think that he'd only hired lawyers who are even worse at legal stuff than he is. Courtroom observers believe that this one, Mr. Keis, may have actually pulled off a brilliant bit of performance art and actually taken one for the team. This theory states that instead of writing about how Eric Trump seemingly perjured himself about the Trump statement of financial condition and the fact that it sure looks like Eric only began to develop amnesia about company financials in 2020 as the attorney general's investigation began, instead of that, everybody is writing about the clerk and the gag order again. And the judge yelling. And as a bonus, when they are writing about those things, they also aren't mentioning Dementia J. Supporting this theory is the startling realization that there could actually have been an entire day in a courtroom somewhere in the world in which Donald Trump's name did not come up at all. But he can never leave well enough alone. Nor can he leave bad enough alone, for that matter. Dementia J attacked Engeron online again at midday, and then he did something even weirder. Quote, our corrupt attorney general sits on her ass in court all day watching the Trump family. Unquote. So, Defendant Trump, how long have you been obsessed by Letitia James's backside? There is one more Trump trial note. It was a light day, only five of them in progress. At the 14th Amendment disqualification hearing in Colorado, Trump's team called as witnesses 
the just-announced-his-retirement Representative Ken Buck, the woman who organized the January 6th rally, and the chief of staff to Congressman Bat Guano, Paul Gozar. Ken Buck stumbled all over the so-called Republican evidence about the insurrection, saying the January 6th committee left out Jim Jordan's side of the story, which immediately reminded the court that Jim Jordan ignored first an invitation to testify to the committee and then a subpoena from the committee. Jim Jordan. Remember Jim Jordan? But the part about that that knocked me out was the part that again supports my conviction that whatever Trump's brain problem is, it is getting worse and rapidly so. Ken Buck testified on Trump's behalf in court at about 9 a.m. local time yesterday. Not 12 hours earlier, Trump had written, quote, good news for the country. Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado, a weak and ineffective super rhino, if ever there was one, announced today that he won't be running again, which is a great thing for the Republican Party. Bad news for Ken Buck. That's the same Trump whose subversion you defended under oath. Worse news for Trump. Now, Ken Buck also knows that if you are loyal to Trump, you can rest assured that you can rely on him for the rest of your life. He will never forget to not give a damn who you are or what you did for him. A little closer to home, this is year 25 of the part of my career I've spent covering politics and rarely do headlines surprise me anymore. But to be fair, a hat tip to the writers of this part of our current timeline, quote, U.S. investigating whether New York Mayor Eric Adams received illegal donations from Turkey. A raid at the home of his chief fundraiser was part of an inquiry into whether foreign money was funneled into his mayoral campaign. A search warrant shows... I wonder how he's going to claim this was all God's doing. Anybody who has lived in this city for longer than 22 minutes knows that when the mayor leaves for Washington to try to get money for something, and when he gets there, he suddenly cancels the meetings and heads right back to New York that something good is in the microwave. And then it came, the news yesterday that the FBI had raided the top donation wrangler of his campaign, the woman who doubles as one of his key agenda operatives, always pushing the mayor wants this and the mayor wants that. Finally, out comes the warrant and the backstory, novel even for this city and its Madame Tussauds collection of corrupt mayors. There is a Brooklyn construction company involved. It has ties to Turkey. There is Bay Atlantic University in Washington, which has 600 students, but no Wikipedia page, but it's owned by people in Turkey. And it has ties to Mayor Adams. Then there's the mayor himself, who's boasted he's traveled six or seven times to... Turkey. There are donors who are in the ledger books but don't seem to actually exist or at least to have donated. And there are allegedly kickbacks to the construction company and to Turkey. And I will just state for the record, Mr. Chairman, don't blame me. I voted for the garbage commissioner lady. Back to Washington, Drooping Johnson Watch Day 9, the new fifth-string speaker passed his support Israel, don't support Ukraine, don't you dare let the IRS investigate rich Republican tax evaders bill. He even got 12 Democratic votes for it. It will go to the Senate, where there is not a chance in hell of it passing, and Ukraine will be put back in, and the defunding of the IRS that will expand the deficit will be taken back out. But that's not the point. The point is that, once again, this Johnson's weird ejaculations. What? Dictionary definition of ejaculation is something said quickly and suddenly. What? What this guy says about he's not playing politics with aid to Israel, this bothers me. It bothers me because it's clear that Mike Johnson does not realize that we all can see him. And now, as Israel begins the next phase of its war, it's been kind of disturbing to us. I've heard Democrats uh, suggest that there needs to be a ceasefire. Israel doesn't need a ceasefire. It needs its allies to cease with the politics and deliver support now. And that's what we're doing. 
House Republicans plan to do that. We're going to do it in short order, and it provides Israel the aid it needs to defend itself, free its hostages, and eradicate Hamas, which is a mission that must be accomplished. All of this, all of this, while we also work to ensure responsible spending and reduce the size of the federal government to pay for that commitment to our friend and ally. We cannot waste any time getting Israel the aid it needs. We're going to work on that. Right. No politics and no delay. Other than the part about Ukraine, which I guess is kind of relevant because they're both wars. Oh, and the part about the IRS, which has got nothing to do with Israel. It's pure. It's pure politics. Three-year-old child could see that. Any one of my dogs could see that. There is the terrifying prospect that Mike Johnson might not be this stupid. He might actually believe he's getting away with it. And lastly, speaking of Johnsons, there's Lauren Boebert. She and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Chip Roy in a three-way war of words. It began with a post by Roy explaining why he moved to stop the vote to censure Representative Tlaib. Then Barney Rubble, Marjorie Taylor Greene, subtweeted him. You voted to kick me out of the Freedom Caucus, but kept CNN wannabe Ken Buck and vaping, groping Lauren Boebert. All right. Vaping, groping Lauren Boebert? Sure. Roy replied to that, tell her to go chase so-called Jewish space lasers if she wants to spend time on that sort of thing. And Green then responded, oh, shut up, Colonel Sanders, and predicted that this would all end with him reciting, quote, powdered wig soliloquies as Americans are marched to the firing squads. And no, that's where they lost, man. I don't get that reference either. Curiously silent through all this, though, was vaping, groping Lauren Boebert. Sources say she's simply sitting there quietly, trying to get a grip on the situation. I made that last part up. Also of interest here, oops, turns out there are more skeletons in the closet of Dean Phillips, the gelato king and Minnesota congressman who is challenging Biden in the primaries. But it's just a coincidence that Harlan Crow has contributed to Dean's campaign. When Harlan Crow might not be your biggest problem, you've got some closet. That's next. This is Countdown. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. 
Gotta get it fixed. I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. With just a few taps on the app, you can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. It's your one-stop shop. Angie can help you find the best price for your project by comparing quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. They get the difficulties that can come with home projects. They get it. Why not make it as simple as possible? Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. This is Countdown with Keith. Oberman. Still ahead on Countdown in the dear dead days of the early 1970s, when innocence and naivete consumed us all, my dad and I were flying to Boston for some reason, and for some reason, there was a passenger who'd pissed us off. Another passenger in the line to get the tickets, maybe? And he sat near us in the waiting room, so as we sat there in the waiting room at LaGuardia, my dad and I began to on a totally ad hoc, unplanned basis, try to scare the crap out of the guy because he had annoyed us. I didn't think they allowed that on planes, I began. My dad winked at me. I didn't think they allowed anything like that on commercial flights. He nodded me to keep going. Well, I said, I didn't think you could put explosives on any plane in this country. The guy sitting near us looked alarmed and then quickly moved away. Mission accomplished. I do not believe that by that point in my life I had read The Lady on 142 by James Thurber, but I might have, and it might have inspired that impromptu and really evil practical joke at that airport. You'll hear why next in Fridays with Thurber and The Lady on 142. First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. Worse, Congressman Dean Phillips, the Harlan Crow-funded, quote, Democrat, unquote, who is challenging President Biden in the primaries because he thinks Biden is too old. And remember the polling. It does not matter if anybody thinks Biden is too old. It only matters if everybody thinks Trump is too old. Anywho, Daily Beast reports he's so rich, Dean Phillips is, that he's the Talenti gelato guy that he has his own secret holding company and he buys real estate through it in order to lower his tax liability. So his purchase of his one and a half million dollar town home in DC, it was bought not by Dean Phillips nor by his wife, but by Anna D LLC, which is legal except for one problem. He is a member of Congress after all and his financial transactions are supposed to be transparent, except there's no record of this one or of him owning the LLC in question. Oops. Maybe Harlan Crow owns it. Worser, a Fox News tie between two of the true scumbags on that channel, little Jesse Waters, who broke in as Bill O'Reilly's henchman and procurer and stalker, and who went on Fox and said of Arab Americans who are for some reason against all or just part of the tragedy in the Middle East, quote, we've had it with them. And so if you're an Arab American in this country, no, 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 someone is going to get punched in the face, unquote. Apparently that someone turns out to be, at least metaphorically, Waters, who was not on either of his shows yesterday. Rumor is he's been suspended. Then there's Mark Levin of Fox, whose voice is so bad, he sounds like somebody scraping aluminum siding with barbecue tongs. His voice is so bad he will never get a weeknight show on Fox, but he is on on the weekends. And he was nice enough recently to call Jake Tapper of CNN a, quote, self-hating Jew. And now he says Wolf Blitzer's, quote, parents weren't victims in one way or another of the Holocaust. And you can see where this guy is going. 
Wolf Blitzer's parents fled Poland after all four of his grandparents were killed during the Holocaust, murdered. His maternal grandparents were murdered at Auschwitz. This is not enough for Levin, and you could call Levin self-hating, but he didn't have time for that. He's too busy hating everybody else. A truly sick and disgusting creature. But our winners, Hockey's Anaheim Ducks. Saturday, and I think you've probably heard about this, the former Pittsburgh Penguin player Adam Johnson died during a professional hockey game in England when his neck was devastatingly cut by the skate of another player. That league immediately mandated that all players in it wear neck guards. The National Hockey League seems to be moving towards that too. Many players around the league immediately voluntarily began to wear them, at least in practices. But in Anaheim? The Ducks' social media team yesterday posted a slow-motion video of Anaheim goon Radko Gudis with a legal mid-ice hip check of Arizona's Clayton Keller with the caption, Beware the Butcher. After Gudis hit Keller, both players crumpled to the ice, and first, Gudis's left skate just missed hitting Keller's unprotected neck, maybe by a foot, and then Gudis's right skate literally bumped up against the side of Keller's head, his helmet, missing his neck again by just a couple of inches. Beware the butcher. And the Anaheim Ducks decided to celebrate that play and use the term butcher while police in England are still investigating exactly how a skate to the neck killed Adam Johnson on ice six days ago. The Anaheim Ducks, as they say, read the effing room today's worst persons in the world. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. Got to get it fixed. I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. In just a few taps in the Angie app or clicks on the site. You can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. Renters, you can use Angie too for moving, installations, or cleaning. Angie can even help with extremely specific projects. Just tell them what you need, and Angie will find the right solution for you. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com, or download the app today. To the 
number one story on the countdown, and it is Fridays with Thurber, and thus the number one story on the countdown is Fridays with James Thurber. Many of the great writers' great stories, the short stories, the fables, have great meaning or symbolism, and some of them are just great fun. Let me give you one of the latter from the Thurber Carnival. It will explain itself fairly quickly. The Lady on 142 by James Thurber. The train was 20 minutes late, we found out, when we bought our tickets, so we sat down on a bench in the little waiting room of the Cornwall Bridge Station. It was too hot outside in the sun. This midsummer Saturday had got off to a sulky start, and now, at three in the afternoon, it sat sticky and restive in our laps. There were several others besides Sylvia and myself waiting for the train to get in from Pittsfield, an older woman who fanned herself with a daily news, a young lady in her 20s reading a book, a slender, tanned man sucking dreamily on the stem of an unlighted pipe. In the center of the room, leaning against a high iron radiator, a small girl stared at each of us in turn, her mouth open, as if she had never seen people before. The place had the familiar pleasant smell of railroad stations in the country, of something compounded of wood and leather and smoke. In the cramped space behind the ticket window, a telegraph instrument clicked intermittently, and once or twice a phone rang and the station master answered it briefly. I couldn't hear what he said. I was glad on such a day that we were going only as far as Gaylordsville, the third stop down the line, 22 minutes away. The station master had told us that our tickets were the first tickets to Gaylordsville he'd ever sold. I was idly pondering this small distinction when a train whistle blew in the distance. We all got to our feet, but the station master came out of his cubbyhole and told us it was not our train, but the 1245 from New York northbound. Presently, the train thundered in like a hurricane and sighed ponderously to a stop. The station master went out into the platform and came back after a minute or two. The train got heavily underway again for Canaan. I was opening a pack of cigarettes when I heard the station master talking on the phone again. This time, his words came out clearly. He kept repeating one sentence. He was saying, Conductor Reagan on 142 has the lady the office was talking about. The person on the other end of the line did not appear to get the meaning of the sentence. The station master repeated it and hung up. For some reason, I figured that he did not understand it either. Sylvia's eyes had the lost, reflective look they wear when she's trying to remember in what box she packed the Christmas tree ornaments. The expressions on the faces of the older woman, the young lady, and the man with the pipe had not changed. The little staring girl had gone away. Our train was not due for another five minutes, and I sat back and began trying to reconstruct the lady on 142, the lady conductor Reagan had, the lady the office was asking about. I moved nearer to Sylvia and whispered, See if the trains are numbered in your timetable. She got the timetable out of her handbag and looked at it. 142, she said, is the 1245 from New York. This was the train that had gone by a few minutes before. The woman was taken sick, said Sylvia. They're probably arranging to have a doctor or her family meet her. The older woman looked around at her briefly. The young woman, who had been chewing gum, stopped chewing. The man with the pipe seemed oblivious. I lighted a cigarette and sat thinking. The woman on 142, I said to Sylvia, flatly, might be almost anything, but she is definitely not sick. The only person who did not stare at me was the man with the pipe. Sylvia gave me her temperature-taking look, a cross between anxiety and vexation. Just then, our train whistled and we all stood up. I picked up our two bags and Sylvia took the sack of string beans we had picked up for the Connells. When the train came clanking in, I said in Sylvia's ear, He'll sit near us. You watch. Who? Who will? She said. The stranger, I told her. The man with the pipe. Sylvia laughed. He's not a stranger, she said. He works for the breeds. 
I was certainly that he did not work for the breeds. Women like to place people. Every stranger reminds them of somebody. The man with the pipe was sitting three seats in front of us across the aisle when we got settled. I indicated him with a nod of my head. Sylvia took a book out of the top of her overnight bag and opened it. What's the matter with you? She demanded. I looked around before replying. A sleepy man and woman sat across from us. Two middle-aged women in the seat in front of us were discussing the severe, griping pain one of them had experienced as a result of inflamed diverticulitis. A slim, dark-eyed young woman sat in the seat behind us. She was alone. The trouble with women, I began, is that they explain everything by illness. I have a theory that we could be celebrating the 12th of May or even the 16th of April as Independence Day if Mrs. Jefferson hadn't got the idea her husband had a fever and put him to bed. Sylvia found her place in the book. We've been all through that before, she said. Why couldn't the woman on 142 be sick? That was easy, I told her. Conductor Reagan, I said, got off the train at Cornwall Bridge and spoke to the station master. I've got the woman the office was asking about, he said. Sylvia cut in. He said lady. I gave the little laugh that annoys her. All conductors say lady, I explained. Now, if a woman had got sick on the train, Reagan would have said, a woman got sick on my train, tell the office. What must have happened is that Reagan found somewhere between Kent and Cornwall Bridge a woman the office had been looking for. Sylvia did not close her book, but she looked up. Maybe she got sick before she got on the train and the office was worried, said Sylvia. She was not giving the problem close attention. If the office knew she got on the train... I said patiently, they wouldn't have asked Reagan to let them know if he found her. They would have told him about her when she got on. Sylvia resumed her reading. Let's stay out of it, she said. It isn't any of our business. I hunted for my chicklets, but couldn't find them. It might be everybody's business, I said. Every patriot's. I know, I know, said Sylvia. You think she's a spy. Well, I think she's sick. I ignored that. Every conductor on the line has been asked to look out for her. I said, Reagan found her. She won't be met by her family. She'll be met by the FBI. Or the OPA, said Sylvia. Alfred Hitchcock things don't happen on the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad. I saw the conductor coming from the other end of the couch. I'm going to tell the conductor, I said, that Reagan on 142 has got the woman. No, you're not, said Sylvia. You're not going to get us in mixed up in this. He probably knows anyway. The conductor, short, stocky, silver-haired, and silent, took up our tickets. He looked like a kindly ickies. Sylvia who had stiffened, relaxed when I let him go by without a word about the woman on 142. He looks exactly as if he knew where the Maltese falcon is hidden, doesn't he? said Sylvia with the laugh that annoys me. Nevertheless, I pointed out, you said a little while ago that he probably knows about the woman on 142. If she's just sick, why should they tell the conductor on this train? I'll rest more easily when I know that they've actually got her. Sylvia kept reading as if she hadn't heard me. I leaned my head against the back of the seat and closed my eyes. The train was slowing down noisily and a brakeman was yelling, Kent! Kent! When I felt a small, cold pressure against my shoulder. Oh! The voice of the woman in the seat behind me said, I've dropped my copy of Coronet under your seat. She leaned closer and her voice became low and hard. Get off here, mister, she said. We're going to Gaylordsville, I said. You and your wife are getting off here, mister, she said. I reached for the suitcases on the rack. What do you want, for heaven's sake, asked Sylvia. We're uh, getting off here, I told her. 
Are you really crazy? She demanded. This is only Kent. Come on, sister, said the woman's voice. You take the overnight bag and the beans. You take the big bag, mister. Sylvia was furious. I knew you'd get us into this, she said to me, shouting about spies at the top of your voice. That made me angry. You're the one who mentioned spies, I told her. I didn't. You kept talking about it and talking about it, said Sylvia. Come on, get off, the two of you, said the cold, hard voice. We got off. As I helped Sylvia down the steps, I said, We know too much. Oh, shut up, she said. We didn't have far to go. A big black limousine waited a few steps away. Behind the wheel sat a heavy-set foreigner with cruel lips and small eyes. He scowled when he saw us. The boss don't want nobody up there, he said. It's all right, Carl, said the woman. Get in, she told us. We climbed into the back seat. She sat between us with the gun in her hand. It was a handsome, jeweled Derringer. Alice will be waiting for us at Gaylordsville, said Sylvia, in all this heat. The house was a long, low, rambling building reached at the end of a poplar-lined drive. Never mind the bags, said the woman. Sylvia took the string beans and her book, and we got out. Two huge mastiffs came bounding off the terrace, snarling. Down, Mata, said the woman. Down, Pedro. They slunk away, still snarling. Sylvia and I sat side by side on a sofa in a large, handsomely appointed living room. Across from us, in a chair, lounged a tall man with heavily lidded black eyes and long, sensitive fingers. Against the door through which we had entered the room leaned a thin, undersized young man with his hands in the pockets of his coat and a cigarette hanging from his lower lip. He had a drawn, sallow face and his small, half-closed eyes stared at us incuriously. In a corner of the room, a squat, swarthy man twiddled with the dials of a radio. The woman paced up and down, smoking a cigarette in a long holder. "'Well, Gale,' said the lounging man in a soft voice, "'to what do we owe this unexpected visit?' Gale kept pacing. "'They got Sandra,' she said finally. The lounging man did not change expression. "'Who got Sandra, Gale?' He asked softly. Reagan on one four two, said Gale. The squat, swarthy man jumped to his feet. All the time Egypt say kill this Reagan, he shouted. All the time Egypt say bomb off this Reagan. The lounging man did not look at him. Sit down, Egypt, he said quietly. The swarthy man sat down. Gale went on talking. The punk here shot off his mouth, he said. He was wise. I looked at the man leaning against the door. <laughs> she means you, said Sylvia, who laughed. The dame was dumb, Gail went on. She thought the lady on the train was sick. Now I laughed. She means you, I said to Sylvia. The punk was blowing his top all over the train, said Gail. I had to bring him along. Sylvia who had the beans on her lap, began breaking and stringing them. "'Well, my dear lady,' said the lounging man, "'a most homely little touch.' "'Was a touch?' demanded Egypt. "'Touch,' I told him. Gail sat down in a chair. "'Who's going to rub him out?' she asked. "'Freddy,' said the lounging man. Egypt was on his feet again. Nah, nah, he shouted. Not the punk. The punk bump off the last six, seven people. The lounging man looked at him. Egypt paled and sat down. I thought you were the punk, said Sylvia. I looked at her coldly. I know where I have seen you before, I said to the lounging man. It was at Zagreb in 1927. Tilden took you in straight sets. Six love, six love, six love. The man's eyes glittered. I think I bump off this man myself, he said. Freddy walked over and handed the lounging man an automatic. At this moment, the door Freddy had been leaning against burst open, and in rushed the man with the pipe, shouting, Gale! 
Gail! Gail! Gaylordsville! Gaylordsville! bawled the brakeman. Sylvia was shaking me by the arm. Quit moaning, she said. Everybody's looking at you. I rubbed my forehead with a handkerchief. Hurry up, she said, Sylvia said. They don't stop here long. I pulled the bags down and, and we got off. Have you got the beans? I asked Sylvia. Alice Connell was waiting for us. On the way to their home in the car, Sylvia began to tell Alice about the woman on 142. I didn't say anything. He thought she was a spy, said Sylvia. They both laughed. She probably got sick on the train, said Alice. They were probably arranging for a doctor to meet her at the station. That's just what I told him, said Sylvia. I lighted a cigarette. The lady on 142, I said firmly, was definitely not sick. Oh, Lord, said Sylvia. Here we go again. The Lady on 142 by James Thurber. I love that one. I have never gotten on a train since the first time I read that one, which was probably 40 years ago. Never gotten on a train in summer in the daytime without thinking about the lady on 142. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully studio at the Elderman Broadcasting Empire World Headquarters here in New York. Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel arranged, produced, and performed most of our music. Mr. Chanel handled orchestration and keyboards. Mr. Ray was on guitars, bass, and drums, and it was produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including some Beethoven, arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. Sports music, courtesy of ESPN Inc. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis. We call it the Olderman theme from ESPN2. Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Howard Feynman. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 1,032nd day since Dementia J. Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Convict him now while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is Tuesday. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olderman. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olderman is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.